I'd like to start with a couple questions. First, and many of you who are homeschoolers here, I realize not everyone is a homeschooler here this week, but, but some of you probably have a Bible class as part of your homeschool curriculum, and, and so you may have a leg up in answering this first question. And that is, which one of Paul's letters most clearly and fully lays out the gospel? Just shout out some answers. Romans. Romans. Anyone else? You know, I knew you were going to say Romans. Because I always thought of Romans too. Romans is a great letter. Romans lays out justification by faith, right? That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that was always the answer I would have given until I really got to know the book of Ephesians. Now Ephesians talks about justification by faith, that we're saved by grace through faith, and that's core and central to the gospel. But God is so big, and the gospel is so big that it's even bigger than that. And Ephesians lets us in on that bigger part. And I'm excited to share that good news with us as we look at it together this week. For example, we read in chapter 1 of Ephesians that God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Wow, that's a lot to get your mind around. And we're going to see this week what amazingly good news this is as we dig into the book of Ephesians. Here's a second question for those of you who homeschool particularly. Why do you homeschool? Why don't you turn to someone next to you, give your name, give where you're from, um, how many people are in your family, and if you homeschool, give one or two reasons why you homeschool. If you don't, just say, hey, I don't homeschool, but good to meet you. So your name, where you're from, how many are in your family, and why you homeschool. that we homeschool. And uh, I say we because I support her and she does the lion's share of the the work. Um, But if I had to categorize the reasons that we homeschool into just two categories, it might be these two. We homeschool because of the bad news and we homeschool because of the good news. There's a lot of bad news out there, right? Our country has lost its morals. They've taken the Bible and prayer out of schools, etc., etc., right? 
And often we as Christians like to motivate each other by rehearsing the bad news. But there are good news reasons to homeschool too, right? Anne and my unofficial mission statement for homeschooling is, we are raising up, we are discipling our kids to be world changers. World changers, kids who can be good news, kids who can share and bring the good news of Jesus to the world. And as parents, we hope and try to be good news to our kids, too, while we're doing it. We want them to experience the good news through us. We want them to be raised in an environment around us and other adults who will love them unconditionally, just as God loves us. So that they grow up secure, so that they grow up well-adjusted, rather than having their primary attachments be to their peers who, who may like them one day and drop them the next day or stab them in the back. That's a tough way to grow up. And so there are good news reasons that we homeschool. There are good news reasons and there are bad news reasons. And here's the key thing for our family. We always want the good news reasons to outweigh the bad news reasons. We want homeschooling not to be about what we're protecting our kids from as much as it's about what we're preparing our kids for. Because we serve a God who has this world firmly in hand, who has seated His Son, as we just read, as King far above all other rule and authority. As Martin Luther put it so famously in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. Or as E. Stanley Jones, the famous missionary to India, put it, talking about the early Christians, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to, but in delight, look what has come to the world. And it's my hope that this week, the book of Ephesians can help to open our eyes afresh to the good news of what God has done and is doing through Jesus Christ. And so I've entitled this series this week, Good News for Homeschools, Homeschoolers, and there's good news for everyone, if you're not a homeschooler. Could anyone use some good news this week? Good, me too. We're going to jump right into the deep end of the pool tonight. I, I like when I come to a conference like this to have the first evening be a nice short session. You know, we're tired. We, we got ourselves here. We got our families here this week. And um, sometimes we're weary. But as I looked over the material that I wanted to go through with you this week, there wasn't any other way to do it but to bite off a big chunk tonight. So we're going to plow through some really great stuff. And you know, if you're tired and you don't get every bit of it, that's okay. Listen maybe for the one thing that God wants to speak to your heart tonight. And if some of it goes by, that's okay. But we're going to lay a foundation for where we're going to go this week. Alright, so if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. And if you're able, why don't you stand for the reading of God's Word? As for you, the Apostle Paul writes, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's work, uh, handiwork, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You may be seated. God, please take these words which you inspired the Apostle Paul to send so long ago to a church in Ephesus. But these words which continue to live as your word. May they now live in our hearts. May you meet us. May you speak to us. May you preach good news to our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of years ago, I was near Mount Cobb, Pennsylvania, and my car broke down. I had to get it towed to a mechanic, and it was pretty far off the beaten track, and it took a few hours to get it repaired. And so when it was done, I was really eager to get home. It was getting late. I had to get to work the next day. And I didn't know that particular area so well. And so I checked the map and I figured out which road would get me back to Interstate 84, which I needed to take. And I navigated to that road. I turned onto that road and I headed out, headed to 84. I knew from the map that it would be 10 or 15 minutes until I would hit 84. And so I'm driving along happily. I'm listening to the radio, eager to get home. And... 15 minutes go by, and there's no sign of 84. And so now I'm starting to get nervous, right? So I, I drive a little faster. Where is 84? Well, finally I find somewhere to stop, and I ask someone, and of course 84 is now 25 to 30 miles in the opposite direction. Somehow i gotten on the right road going in the wrong direction. And that's happened to most of you, right? Help me out here, I'm not the only one who's ever done that. Yeah. Well, N.T. Wright, who's a British Bible interpreter, in his commentary on Ephesians, tells about a time that that happened to him. And then he adds, this is the severe point that Paul is making in the first three verses of this chapter, which we have just read. We live in a world where human beings, left to themselves, not only choose the wrong direction, but remain cheerfully confident that it is in fact the right one. Indeed, people regularly point out as evidence of its being the right one how confident they are on the subject. It is, after all, a fine road, much traveled, and in good repair. The Apostle Paul begins this chapter by painting quite a grim picture about the direction that we were headed. 
You were dead, he says, in your transgressions and sins. You were enslaved to the cravings of your sinful nature. You were, by nature, objects of wrath, condemned by God for your willful rebellion against God. Now, I fully realize that we live in a world where you can't talk like this anymore. It's so negative, so intolerant, so out of touch. Even a lot of churches shy away from this kind of message. I mean, life is hard enough for people. that They need to be encouraged. They need some good news. Especially on summer vacation at the shore, right? Well, Paul is about to give us a lot of good news. But the good news isn't nearly as good unless we first come to grips with the bad news. So bear with me, bear with Paul for the next 10 minutes or so as he tries to help us see that we were or maybe still are happily trucking down the road in completely the wrong direction. Paul starts by insisting that we were dead, dead in transgressions and sins. Let's talk for a minute about these two words, transgressions and sins. Right in the woods behind our house runs an underground aqueduct which connects a nearby reservoir to New York City. And recently, the New York Water Authority came along and they put no trespassing signs all along the edge of the back edge of our property. They don't want anyone near that aqueduct messing with it, especially post 9-11. Now, our kids had always played in those woods, and so they were pretty disappointed when those signs went up. And they've been really good about obeying those signs, but let's say one of them did one day walk right past that sign into those woods. That's called transgressing or trespassing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. God draws a line. And God says, don't cross this line. Don't steal. Don't gossip. Don't sleep around. And we say, but I like what's on the other side of that line. And so we step across. That's transgressing. The other word Paul uses is sin. You, you may know that it's a term from archery. God, or to sin rather, is to, to miss the mark. God sets up a bullseye. Love one another. Uh, serve one another. Forgive. Do away with your anger and your bitterness. And we fall short of that mark. We, we miss that target. That's sin. And what's the result of transgression and sin, according to Paul? It's death. Now, if you know a little bit about Christian theology, then you know that even one sin, one little transgression, is enough to make you deserving of death. But in a way, that's beside the point, because who of us has committed just one? I mean, sin is like Lay's potato chips. Do do you know the the, uh, ad line? I bet you can't just eat one. No, Paul says in verse 2, you used to live in sin. Sin was your lifestyle. Maybe you were a pretty good person from all outward appearances, but but we're not talking here about the boundary lines you draw for yourself or or the targets you set up for yourself. Paul's talking here about the ones God sets up. And by those standards, Paul says, you had a definite habit of crossing the line and of missing the mark. The late Christian songwriter Rich Mullins sang about this. He sang, Well, I am a good Midwestern boy. I give an honest day's work if I can get it. I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my girl. I've got values that would make the White House jealous. 
Well, I do get a little more, much over-impressed till I think of Peter and Paul and the apostles. I don't stack up too well against them, I guess, but by the standards around here, I ain't doing that awful. The worst part about living in sin is, is you can think you're doing great and not realize that you're headed in the dead wrong direction. After all, by your own standards, you were doing okay. You, and, and there were plenty of other travelers on the road alongside of you going along the same direction. And in verse 2, Paul calls this following the ways of the world. This is just the way traffic is flowing. The world is okay after all with a little bit of my talking about my coworker behind her back. Or a little bit of uh, cheating the boss a little here and there. Or, or getting a little help on an exam at school. The world will overlook it if you're a little too sarcastic or you worry a little too much. I mean, who doesn't worry in this economy? But Paul says, no, you don't realize how dumbed down the standards of the world are. Don't, don't you realize why this world is so messed up? It's because we've strayed far from God's boundary lines. We've missed God's bullseye by a country mile. And then Paul mentions another sinister influence in all this. Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We know him as Satan or the devil. And I think it's kind of ironic that Paul says this kingdom is in the air because now it's not only in the air, but it's on the air. Nearly every show and, and movie and even the commercials are, are continuing or are encouraging us to continue down that same well-traveled road. Then in verse 3, Paul takes it up yet another notch. He says, there's a part of us which craves all of this sin. Paul speaks of gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, of following its desires and thoughts. I mean, if the battle was only out there, we might stand a chance, but the battle's in here. There's a part of us that, that wants to feel good now with no consequences or responsibilities. That, that wants things to go a little better for us than for the next guy. There's a part of us that wants to, to feel loved, but that isn't sure we want to commit in return. A part of us that wants to be served, but not to have to so much serve in return. And Paul adds it all up and says, when you live this way, the end result is death. You weren't made to live this way. So it causes you to start dying inside and eventually you just die completely. And this doesn't just affect us as individuals, does it? The, the whole world is living this way and so it affects everything. The, the whole world breaks, it, it unravels, this world is dying. But that isn't even the worst of it, Paul says. When we live this way, we were also in our very nature objects of God's wrath. Now what's God's wrath? Some people hear about God's wrath and they picture God flying into a blind rage and, and letting loose thunderbolts and, and raining down burning sulfur from heaven or, or God with clenched teeth and, and red face just throwing poor helpless people into hell. But when God expresses His wrath, He isn't out of control he isn't a, in a blind rage that's just taking over his better sense. 
No, God is in complete control. God is diligently and appropriately giving us exactly what we deserve for messing up His good world. Just like a judge must do when a, when a dangerous and unremorseful criminal stands before him and the judge must mete out the punishment. Wrath is also, in a sense, not only God giving us what we deserve, it's also God giving us what we want. C.S. Lewis, the writer of uh, Narnia fame, um, puts it this way. He says, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who say to God, your will be done. And there are those to whom God says, your will be done. That's wrath. When God says, so you want to do it your own way without me? Without my boundaries to protect you? Without my targets to guide you? Without my blessings to keep you afloat? Without my restraining hand to protect you from the worst of yourself? Without my presence to give you life? Okay, have it your way. That's wrath. Well, that's the bad news. But God... Verse 4. But God. Those are two of my favorite words in the Bible. They sum up the good news almost as well as any two words can. First word, but. It's been said that we live after the but. I'd love to go on a date with you, but... I meant to do my homework, but... You really deserve a raise, but... But has a way of negating everything that comes before it, doesn't it? And in our case, this is very, very good news. Second word, God. Now this doesn't come through in the English translation, but in the original Greek, verses 1 to 7 of Ephesians 2 is all one long sentence. Can you believe it? The whole thing, one sentence, 125 words. We have to break it up in English to make it easier to digest. But in the Greek, the subject of this whole long sentence is here in verse 4, and it's God. But God. One of my favorite preachers, Daryl Johnson, says that God is the subject of every great sentence. Too often in life we make ourselves the subject of most sentences. We even do it in the Christian life. I came to Christ. We are struggling in our marriage. I have my devotions every morning. We're trying our best to raise our kids to love God. I don't pray enough. I struggle in my faith. I, we, I. But God, the Apostle Paul reminds us, he's encouraging us to get our focus off of ourselves and back onto God. God is the subject. God is the prime mover. God is the great actor in history and in our personal lives too. God has a plan. God takes the initiative. God is at work. God really is. And good news, God has already acted graciously on our behalf. The Apostle Paul then gives us three verbs to sum up what God has already done. Verse 5 and 6. We were dead in our sins. We were enslaved by our sinful nature. We were objects of wrath. But God has made us alive with Christ. But God has raised us up 
with Christ. But God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. You can say amen if you want. Now notice the key to each of these three verbs. The key is this little phrase, with Christ. We're not made alive by ourselves. We're made alive with Christ. We're raised up with Christ. We're seated in the heavenlies with Christ. These three realities, made alive, raised up, seated, are only true for us because they are already true for Christ. And if we are with Christ, then we are are taken along for the ride, so to speak. Back in Ephesians 1, in, in the verse... I quoted earlier, Paul said that God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. And now, wonder of wonders, those who are with Christ are made alive too. We are raised up from the dead too. We're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ too. With Christ. When I was in my mid-twenties, I did an internship for a state representative. I was living in the state of Michigan at the time. And... On occasion, I got to accompany the representative to public hearings and to legislative meetings and even onto the floor of the legislative chamber. And and while some of these were public events, others were closed-door meetings. Doors were monitored. You needed an ID badge or to be on the right list to get in. Sometimes there were even security lineups with metal detectors and x-ray machines. But in each case, I bypassed all the lineups. I breezed right through security without even giving my name. Why? Because I was with him. I was with the representative, and so I could go go wherever he was authorized to go. That begins to give us a picture of what it's like to be with Christ. If we're devoted to Christ's cause, if we have a personal face-to-face relationship with Him, then we gain entrance. We get to go the places that only Christ can go. But it gets even better than that. Back on April 28th, the day before Kate Middleton married Prince William, she was a common 20-something from a regular family, more or less. But now she's a princess with all the luxuries and responsibilities and honors that that position entails. And she didn't earn any of it. Rather, it all became hers because she is now with Prince William. And if we are with King Jesus, if we have become involved in a committed love relationship with Him, then all the benefits and responsibilities that He enjoys become ours as well. Made alive with Christ. Raised up with Christ. Seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. What does all that mean for us? Well, to be honest, it boggles the mind and nobody fully understands it. Yet... But let me say a few things that we can say. First, about being made alive. We were dead in transgressions and sins, objects of wrath, but God made us alive with Christ. These realities of being dead and being made alive bring us back to the story of the Garden of Eden. God had set a boundary for Adam and Eve in the garden, and God said, don't eat from a certain tree. But Adam and Eve transgressed that boundary. They ate, and and when they ate, they died. 
They didn't die physically, at least not immediately, but they, they died spiritually. They became dead to God. And that spiritual death started to creep into every area of their lives. They became ashamed. They hid. They experienced strain and brokenness in their relationships. The, the creation that God had made, which they were a part of, began to unravel. And eventually they did die physically. And, and all of that, all of that death, has been true for us children of Adam and Eve ever since. It's the only thing we know growing up. But God... But God has made us alive with Christ. As the children's story puts it, God has made all of the bad stuff start coming untrue. Just as God raised Christ from the dead into a new creation, a new eternal life, so God has done for us if we are with Christ. With Christ, we're now living in a different reality. We're we're living on a different plane than we were. With Christ, we're becoming all the way alive again. We're we're coming back to life, fully human, fully alive. Spiritually alive. Our relationship with God is being restored. Our ability to love is being restored. We're being changed from the inside out so that, to use the words of the band Coldplay in their song Clocks, we're becoming part of the cure and not part of the disease. With Christ, we're alive. And this new life that we're beginning to experience now will carry on beyond the grave to eternal life. We are and forever will be alive with Christ. And not only has God made us alive, but God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. I think the point here is that we're now part of the winning team. Because Christ is even now reigning on the throne of the universe. And in fact, this reality of Christ's reign is the the bottom line, deepest bedrock reality of the universe. Now, at this present moment in history, we don't often see obvious evidence that this is the case, and so it's easy to forget, right? Sometimes we see little glimmers that Christ is at work, but but often He seems to be doing so little. And I think it's because we're seeing such a small piece of the big picture, and we're we're living in such a smart, or such a short part of the big story, and and a spiritually dark part at that for North America. But if if we step back and if we take in the broad sweep of the last 2,000 years, we see much evidence that Christ is on the throne at work carefully, patiently, but definitely bringing all things under His reign. People are are being reconciled to God by Christ. Um, Christ is feeding the hungry. Christ is releasing the captives. Christ is encouraging the downcast. Christ is loving the unlovely. Christ is working in hearts and in lives and in families and in neighborhoods and schools and workplaces, in cities and in countries, to wrestle them free from the dominion of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and to bring them under the healing, restoring influence of God. 
Until one day, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.22, Christ will be the head over all things. And if we are with Christ, then we are even now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That is, we get to participate in this reigning, ruling thing Christ is doing. We get to become a part of the good news, both experiencing God's reign, Christ's reign, ourselves in our own lives, and also spreading into others. So how do we reign with Christ? Listen carefully here. Because this is where it's so easy to go wrong. The way we participate in Christ's reign is by following His example. How did Jesus come to be king? How did Jesus overcome his enemies? By dying on a cross. The book of Revelation pictures him before the throne of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, looking as a lamb who has been slain. That's how Christ reigns. That's how he came to reign. And he said, if anyone would come after me, let them take up their own crosses and follow me. We reign in the same way Jesus did, by serving sacrificially, by laying down our lives in love for one another. Let me ask you a question. In those hours after the earthquake in Japan, when those nuclear power plants were damaged and they started to overheat and they were leaking radiation, who did the world look to? Who were the ones who took leadership in that situation? Not the politicians in Tokyo, but those brave, nameless workers who risked their health and even their lives to bring those reactors under control, right? Did you think about those folks in there and what they were doing for the rest of us? And ever since God seated Jesus on the throne and Jesus began to reign... Those have been the kind of people who have been truly great. And that has been how Jesus' followers have reigned with him. Paul knew this well. He wrote this amazing letter of Ephesians from a jail cell. And so my wife Anne and I, as we homeschool, we need to remember this upside-down view of greatness when we are seeking to raise world changers. Because the kind of world changers that God is looking for who reign with Christ aren't first and foremost talented kids with Ivy League educations and heaps of self-confidence and great career skills. Although God can use people like that. But first and foremost, those who God is looking for to reign with Christ are rather children who have embraced the Lord's call to be servants. To give their lives away sacrificially in love for others. That's what it means to reign. That's what it means to be seated with Christ. And that's how Jesus says we truly find life. All right, one final point before we close today. And that is that all that God has done for us in bringing us from sin and death and wrath to being alive and raised up and seated to reign with Christ, God has done as an act of grace. We don't deserve any of it. We didn't earn any of it. Rather, verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of His great love for us, did these things. In verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God saved us because He's merciful. God saved us because He looked on us and loved us. God saved us because He delighted to show grace to us. So these three words, very briefly, mercy, grace, and love. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Evangelist Luis Palau tells a story of a mother who once approached Napoleon seeking for a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and that justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. And light came into the light of understanding in Napoleon's eyes, and he said, well then, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Well, grace goes beyond even mercy. If mercy is not getting what you do deserve, grace is getting what you do not deserve. Another story is told about the day when a roadside beggar had the gall to ask the great world conqueror and emperor, Alexander the Great, for a handout. The beggar was filthy, was pitiful, had no right to ask this great conqueror and world ruler for anything. But the emperor threw him several gold coins. And one of Alexander's courtiers was astonished at this generosity and commented, Sir, copper coins would have adequately met a beggar's need. Why give him gold? And Alexander responded in royal fashion, Gold coins would suit the beggar's need. Or, I'm sorry, copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. That's grace. And God gives lavish grace far more than we need, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but simply because it's in God's nature to delight to be abundantly gracious. Finally, love. Mercy's great, grace is greater, but love is the greatest of all. Several years ago, um, when one of our children was six, our family was at the zoo with my brother-in-law and his wife and his kids. And uh, we had all just come out of the, one of the animal houses, and it was crowded there. And we, were, we got into a circle, and we were chattering. chatting. We kind of gathered the kids, and we did the head count, as usual. And, and one of our kids wasn't there. And so, you know what we did as parents? We had that panicked feeling, and, and we started racing in all directions through this crowd looking for this missing child. And, and we couldn't find them for what seemed like 10 minutes. It was probably only a minute or two. But then one of us found this child back in the animal house. They'd lagged behind to look at the animals. And, and they had just realized that we weren't there anymore. And they were just starting to tear up. And that's how it is with us and God. Long before we even realize we're lost, God's parents' heart has been breaking for us. God's been seeking for us, desperate in love to find us. And when we let ourselves get found, what, is, what does God do? He does what Ann and I did. He runs and He throws His arms around His child and He embraces us. God saves us not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because He loves us 
with a great love. That's good news. That's something worth homeschooling about. And it's that kind of love which frees us up to be people of good news. People alive in love. People who reign with Christ as world changers. Let's pray. God, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. The Apostle Paul lays it on thick. And we've dove right in headfirst. And I pray that your Spirit would say to us out of all this what we need to hear. And if there are some of us here who um, have been traveling in the wrong direction and have been reminded of that tonight, God, I pray in your love that you would bring them back, that you would welcome them, that you would call them to yourself. I pray that you'd be with us this week, that you would bless us, that you would meet us, that we would know your love in a deeper and richer way. In Jesus' name, amen.